Hello and welcome to episode 64 of the Page One podcast. I'm Tarek. I'm Marco and thanks for joining us at the Page One podcast where we like to try and speak to writers of all kinds about their writing process, their career and how they got into the industry and get as many hints and tips on writing from them as possible. Um, as I always say, there's a big back catalogue there now so uh, please do check out the previous guests. There'll be, there's bound to be someone that that uh, you sure want to listen to, yes. Someone in that massive <laughs> exactly. <pile of> gold. <laughs> exactly, exactly. All, all <laughs> gold nuggets there. Um, and we've got another great guest this week. We do. This week we are chatting with Mr. Peter Moffat, who is a screenwriter, lawyer, uh, much like ourselves, actually. Kind of a path. I think we both. Yeah, because if Martin. if if you those listeners may not know, but uh, you and I. Well, I suppose I was a lawyer. You are still you, a lawyer. You've managed to make exactly. that, that successful. So if, if you've been listening to the previous episodes and thinking, there's something about these guys that I don't like, <laughs> that's what it is. <laughs> exactly. I'm but, actually the secret secret barrister. It's actually me. I don't want to spoil yeah, it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. So uh, Peter started out in, in law as a criminal barrister and uh, moved into writing plays and then screenwriting, as you say. And he's written a lot of legal dramas um drawing on on what he knows there uh silk in the uk criminal justice which became the night of in the us and most recently uh, he's written your honor starring brian cranston which has already been on in the us yeah yeah and finished whole season in the us yeah just I, think, I think it was made a big impact in the us and it's just started on the 2nd of march on sky or now tv in the uk um, that's what show I'm going to wait. I think I'm very bad these days at watching a show week by week. I get impatient. So I know, I'm wait exactly. until it's finished and then binge it in a weekend. So that's my plan for your honour. Exactly. Although you have to watch out for the spoilers. That's the trouble. That's, yeah, I know. One Division's been... I don't want to get into that nest of <laughs> vipers to trying to avoid reading any spoilers for the finale. But um, yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a really fun and interesting chat with Peter, actually, just yeah. hearing about how he made that move from... Uh, being a lawyer into writing and also hearing about the differences in writing for British TV and US TV and for Your Honour he was actually the showrunner of Your Honour which involved sort of running a writer's room and we hear about all of that sort of process and also the research that he did for that show involving going to uh, the US courts and actually chatting with the judges in the middle yeah. of cases, as it turns out, but <laughs> but we won't spoil it too much. So, um, as I say, a really fun episode. The one thing I would say is that if you have not yet seen The Queen's Gambit, um, there is a mild spoiler in the section where we're asking Peter about what he's watched recently towards the end of the podcast. So you may want to uh, sing loudly while he talks about that TV show. <laughs> Luckily for Peter, I have actually already seen the show. Otherwise, I would have had to have a word with him. <laughs> exactly. <it's> okay. <laughs> so um, we'll get straight into the podcast after a quick advert for our notebook. And then uh, we'll be back at the end of the podcast to chat a bit more. But for now, on with the podcast. The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? 
Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying, or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. Obviously, as we've discussed just there before we started recording, um, you were a lawyer first, but did you always have an ambition to be a writer as well? I've always had an ambition to be a writer. Um, but being a lawyer taught me nearly everything I know about being a writer. Um, I didn't mean to become a lawyer, but I'm very, very glad that I did. I spent about uh, eight or nine years at the criminal bar um, in London. And... Um, it teaches you so much about writing. Um, uh, I, I, I never had the um, confidence in my own abilities to, to, to know that I could think on my feet all of the time. So that meant that every night before every day in court, I'd write out all of my cross-examination of you know, the witness for tomorrow, um, which is writing, of mm-hmm. course. Um, and... What it also involves is making sure that the question that you ask gets the answer that you need so that the next question continues to make sense, mm-hmm. right? Which And sometimes cross-examination, as you know, can be hours and hours and hours. So that's a real exercise in kind of controlling what the person who is probably in opposition to you mm-hmm. is saying and doing. And it's also about, of course, structuring a story because in an adversarial system like we have that, the truth isn't what you're after. It, these are competing narratives. I was always on uh, the defense side of things, but the prosecution has a different story and you have your own story and the best story wins. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means structuring everything as well as you can. So when you're cross-examining a police officer, it may be not completely clear to a jury why you've just asked a key question and left a silence after that officer's answer. But it can become clear later um, with another witness, or indeed even later when you make your speech to the jury. Mm-hmm. So they have the satisfaction of seeing things come together 
things that have been seeded earlier, which only make sense late in the day, which is a you know classic example of um, how, how to write a screenplay. Yeah, know? absolutely. And, and then you make a speech to a jury. And sometimes that can be half a day, right? <laughs> and But back in the day when I was a baby barrister, you know, the trials that I were doing were like three days or two days or whatever. So I'd be making two speeches a week to 12 people that you need to persuade that your story is the best story. And quite often it was nonsense what you're trying to suggest, <laughs> right? Completely unbelievable. You've got a fashion somehow. Yeah something that they can buy out of the nonsense that you've been given by your client. And that's a really good exercise in, 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 in how to be a writer. Because again, I used to write everything out in advance um, and learn it. And were you writing in, in your spare time, you know, during all this, were you writing kind of fiction for yourself or did you, how were you harboring that kind of, you know, drive to get out and actually write something for, for the other folk to watch or to read? Yeah. I was, I spent a bit of time towards the end of my career at the bar, trying to do both, so being a barrister and writing, um, which wasn't easy. And I, you know, I, occasionally I found myself on a Monday morning really, really hoping that my client was going to plead guilty so they could fuck <laughs> off. Which, um, on reflection, wasn't very healthy. For, for me, really. um, and... Um, it, it, there just came a moment when it wasn't possible to do two things and I had to make a selfish choice. And that selfish choice was to do what I always wanted to do, which was to be a writer. I would have hated myself had I not had a go. Um, I was much too fearful of the business of writing. That comes from childhood. That comes from being 13 years old and um, hoping you can be Keats um, when you grow up um, and all of that stuff. And if you're not Keats, then what's the point, right? Mm-hmm. Don't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, it took me a long time to get over that, a long time past childhood to understand that not being James Joyce isn't the end of the world, that there are other you know, valuable contributions you might just about be able to make to the writing life. Um, but um, so, um, yeah, ev- eventually, eventually two jobs didn't fit into, into one day and I had to give up one of those. And I, I, I read uh, or, or saw an interview with you where you said that you... Um your sort of first break, as it were, where you entered a playwriting competition and finished runner-up. Is is that was that a route in? And you, when you saw it getting performed, then suddenly it felt real in some way. Um, well, validation. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the South London International Playwriting Competition, a tiny theatre in Croydon, um, run by one guy um, and his assistant, and. I think they were probably the judges of the competition too, him and his assistant. And they said, you know, your play came second. To, incidentally, um, together with Abby Morgan, who has wow. you know, gone on to do, you know, better things than me, but we were together as, as joint runners up on that year. Um, and it just, it just means you get your play read out loud by real actors. Mm-hmm. And so having somebody, anybody, it's pathetic really, saying <laughs> your, your work is good enough to be read out loud by proper actors meant it was okay to go on and carry on writing mm-hmm. um, and got me free of that, you know, the childhood thing of if if you're not James Joyce, don't bother. And so what happened after that point? Was that was that you kind of, you got the validation and did you go for it after that and start writing more scripts and more entries and stuff? Yeah, I, um, I wrote a play for the Hampstead Theatre, um, which was... Um, about what I knew, which was a, a, 
about the bar um, uh, and the criminal justice system. And the producer of Kavanaugh QC um, saw it and said, would you like to write an episode of Kavanaugh? Um, and at the time, I was phenomenally snotty about television. And I, uh, and I went home and spoke to my wife and I said, I don't want to do this. I've had this offer. I don't want to do this. I want to be a playwright. And um, she said, how much money are they offering you? And I told her, and she said, yeah, you do want to do that. <laughs> and um, and then, of course, you know, it's Kavanaugh. Gosh, it's a long time ago now. But it's yeah. John Thor, mm-hmm. you know, who's a hell of an actor and lovely man. And um, I had uh, the director was a guy called David Thacker, who, who you know, fantastic theatre director, had just moved into film and television, and he brought all his friends with him for our episode. So it was Corin Redgrave and all sorts of wonderful <laughs> actors. And I was terribly young, had no idea. And I was, you know, it was a great introduction to you know the life of screenwriting. And it technically. Because it's something that we've not actually had a playwright on before. I mean, technically, how different is writing for theatre as opposed to writing for TV or radio or something like that? Um, I had a, a brief collaboration with an American screenwriter a few years, some years ago. And he said, oh, I, I, I hear you write plays as well. And I said, yeah. And he said, how long does it take you to write a play? And I said, about nine months. And he said... Nine months. And at the time, I had no idea whether he thought that was unbelievably slow or remarkably fast. I completely understand now that what he means is that's like a lifetime. What are you doing? Because it you know, takes him a week and a half to bash out an episode of whatever, right? Um, so um, it, it, you're on your own as a theatre writer and then it comes to rehearsal and... Um, there's all that respect and care that everybody takes around you and make, make sure that you're happy and all of that. And um, that's probably less true in, uh, in television and film writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I kind of wondered that if the, you know, as a TV film writer, if you kind of, you write your scripts, you hand it off and then it's someone else's problem to, to run with it. But perhaps in the theater world, you have more involvement in the, in the final, the, the final show, you know, you're, your say has more weight, perhaps, or is it is it a similar case of thanks for the script, see you later? Um, so I've just been working in America um, and uh, being a showrunner in America, which is a wholly different way of doing things. So the, the writer in the UK is the writer, and then you pass it on, and you'll have questions asked of you, and people will come back to you and ask things. But on a whole, as you say, you've passed it on, which is completely not true in the States, mm-hmm. that you maintain and keep control of everything actually um which is a you know wholly different experience and um what what i try to do which um is 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 to write every stage direction in every screenplay that i put together with as much care as i can muster and and try to think as myself as a novelist so that you know a a semicolon isn't a isn't a comma and that everybody looking at it should understand that and, and should be thinking about all of the care and attention you pay to what you've done. Um, there are no cliches, you know, in, in, in any stage direction that I ever write, as far as I'm aware, um, which is just an obvious basic standard that any writer should, you know, um, adhere to, in my view, but which is um, uncommon in screenwriting, actually. 
Um, and I think what you're doing is you're, is you're saying to everybody, look, um, I'm the starting point for this. The script is the first thing, right? But I'm taking a lot of care over it. I'm putting a lot of effort into this. And I'm asking you to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And although some of what you write, or a lot of what you write by way of stage direction, won't be on the screen, um, it just tells everybody, and there will be hundreds of people who will be reading your script in order to work to it. Um, it tells all of those people that the standards are high, and so should yours be. Um, and people have a good feeling about that, I hope. You know, and, um, and with 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 TV, especially you know, working in America, I imagine it's it's different from working on a show like Silk. I'm guessing, but. Um, do you get sort of producer's notes coming back to you and saying, change this, change that? Why can't it be a six foot tall? Yeah. You know, do you, do you get more of that on the, on the TV side? Um, several hundred of those. Not more. <laughs> I once saw a, um, I once came into a room, I think it was at the BBC and, and a director was in tears speaking to some executives and it turned out that he was extremely upset about um, something they'd said about his cuts of an episode or something he was doing. And it was good to see him, you know, feeling that strongly about his work and everything. And then I thought every single day in my writing life, once my writing goes into the world, I get that. Mm -hmm. Every single day somebody says, change this, we don't like this, we hate this, do that. Um, and it was just, it was just very interesting to see the sort of sensitivity of that director. I thought, God, you do need a thick skin, don't you? Yeah. I mean, you really do need a thick skin. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but you know, but it being in production and being in the States and show running for nine months, deep and wonderful relationships, for example, with the actors mm. who tell you everything that they think about what they're going to have to say. So I just had nine months with Brian Cranston, who, you know, three times a week was sitting down for three hours worth of talking through everything that his character was going to say, which is invaluable mm-hmm. and gives you the, of course, ability to change things, you know, over that time. So it's an ongoing process, evolving process. Crazy to have stopped earlier than that and crazy to stop before you go into the edit, because when you're editing, I mean, boy, is that storytelling, you know. Mm-hmm. You can move great chunks of things around and change everything structurally from a story point of view. Um, and, and to keep the writer out of the edit is a bizarre thing to do because it, you know, it's certainly part of writing, I think. Mm-hmm. So in, in the US, are you still involved because your, your show, uh, Your Honor, which has been out in America since uh, December 2020 and it starts in the UK 2nd of March, which I'm, I'm very excited to watch it. And, mm-hmm. It sounds like in the US, the writers got a lot more involvement in the pre-post show of the filming of it, whereas in the UK, it's much more kind of thanks for the script. Um, and it, I mean, it does it really does sound like spending the time chatting with the actors and getting into the characters you know, with them. I mean, that must be invaluable in terms of of how you view that character in terms of what the future storylines might be, where you take that character. Um, and it must be so satisfying spending that time with them and just fleshing it out the and seeing an, an actor who wants to go in, in, in that level of depth with you as well must be really nice. Yeah, really, really wonderful. Um, 
I particularly love hanging out with method actors, actually. <laughs> yes. You know, I don't know. Tell me about my cufflinks. What you... <laughs> <laughs> which is, which I, I really, really love. And, um, you know, it's a joy. Or props masters, props master coming up to you and saying, I don't know, this pair of glasses or this pair of glasses mm-hmm. or that pair of glasses. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, it's sort of it's sort of childish in a way, but, you know, to, to be asked that, that kind of question is terrific. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and such good fun. You know, <laughs> essentially, <laughs> essentially. Um, but it but it also means because I think when you ask those questions about letting go of a script and giving it over to other people, I think behind that is the is is a sort of fear that you might lose something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I suppose the point about being there all the time is that you can protect your baby too, mm-hmm. right? That mm-hmm. if there are mistakes being made, in your opinion, then you can be there in order to step in and, and, and correct that. Um, so it's both a sort of um, a, a positive thing because it can get better um, by virtue of having other people's ideas come in. And at the same time, in a sort of negative sense, you, you can protect what always is already there from error. Mm-hmm. And as a showrunner uh, for, for your honour, was that what was the process? I mean, did you have the sort of writer's room? Did other people write on the show as, as well as yourself? I've never been in a writer's room until this. And right. it, you, get, you get, can you believe it? You get 24 weeks, right? <laughs> with six other people whose whole job it is to think about great ideas and things connected to the premise that you're writing about, that right. you've come up with. It's sort of unbelievable. And I did, the, I did, you know, I think the right thing in just making sure that every writer in the room was somebody who could tell me something I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so they all came from incredibly different backgrounds to mine. Um, and as a, you know, that, that felt really important as a foreigner, as an outsider, because, you know, I needed all of that. Um, but writers' rooms, as you know, are safe spaces in which you as a writer can say anything you like about your life if it helps with the story that you're making. And they do. And, I mean, leave aside what you get by way of an end product at the end of 24 weeks, oh my God, what a fascinating experience to be one of seven people who's sharing everything mm-hmm. <laughs> with, you know, other people who you're in a room with all day. Um, it's a, it's, it's kind of wonderful. And it's, um, and, I mean, for example, in relation to your honor, there are probably three very, very significant um, story decisions that were made in that room that I could not have come up with were it just me by myself, um, which tells you straight away that it's a good thing. And how does the writer's room work in the sense of, do you assign episode one, two, three to you guys, you know, four, five, six to you guys, or is it a really organic process of, I'm going to kind of oversee all the episodes and uh, ideas will come and then whoever gives the most ideas gets credit for the episode? Or, you know, how do you work out who writes which, which part of the show? All of the above. You can do what you like. Um, and everybody in a writer's room whilst they obviously sometimes bring in an ego, understand that. So there are lots of examples of, of showrunners who a, a writer can come into the office and say, here's my script, I've finished it. Um, the showrunner says, thank you very much. And the writer leaves and the showrunner puts it in the bin without looking at it. <laughs> um, I mean, horrible. Um, and then, you know, um, I mean, I, I revised everything. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's even possible that I was revising scripts that were, 
better than the revised versions, but one voice at the end, a coherent voice at the end, mm-hmm. um, yeah. is pretty essential, I think. Yeah. Um, so you take what you can get. Um, everybody understands that when they come in. There are, there, are, there are writers who have been in writers' rooms all their lives, all their careers, and have never had a word that they have written appear on a television screen. Wow. But they're all, but everybody gets a script. That's mm-hmm. the deal, right? Um, which, I mean, astonishing. I don't know how you kind of carry on functioning, yeah. but it's a, it's a job, you know? You yeah. get paid for it. And it may well be that you're completely brilliant in the room, that you have wonderful ideas, that you're extremely good. I know lots of writers who are, who just, who, who um, speak dialogue as their way of being in a room, which is just perfect. And I think, do that. We're done here. Mm-hmm. Um, they can't always put it on the page, though. You know? How uh, do you say, like, a written by credit then? Is that, is that, is, is that done by, yeah. by in, in the post when you look back at it and think who, contributed the most to this script or is it a fairness thing so if you're writing episode four of a series and you wrote it and it was completely rewritten by um somebody else by the showrunner um it would still be written by you that would be the credit you still get the credit for having done the work um i know i know two writers who are married to each other who met in a writer's room and one of the two writers completely rewrote the other writer's script without that writer knowing. And and to this day, to this day, the rewritten writer still doesn't know. Right? <laughs> but but her, her now spouse and partner in life rewrote everything that she wrote. <laughs> I just haven't told her. I haven't told her. It's so weird. I don't kind of understand it. And, and uh, Your Honour is uh, an adaptation of an Israeli series, I think. Um, I mean, how did you find doing that, you know, uh, taking an existing work and adapting it as opposed to coming up with something original, completely original yourself? I did it. I had a strange experience with that because I, um, the producer of Iran just called me with the premise, um, which I um, immediately loved and quickly understood could be great. And got off the phone and went upstairs and started writing down thoughts and notes and questions. And um, very quickly realized that I was frightened of looking at the original um, because my thought process seemed to be working well very quickly. And I was just scared of being taken off off that Mm -hmm. by somebody else's version of a story based on the same premise. And so I stayed away from it consciously um avoided looking at it until um much much later um till i felt confident about what we were doing and so on and it's it's interesting because obviously you've you've adapted the israeli show but your 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 own show criminal justice was adapted by hbo to become the the night of and and what was your involvement in that if any did you have any involvement in the in that or was it a case of we just wanted to buy this up and just do it for u.s market so here's, so here's what happened. So first of all, it was Richard Price who was writing the pilot and lots of the episodes, actually. And he sent me the first draft of his pilot. And um, I hate reading screenplays. I find them really hard to read. I can't concentrate. I hate the format. 
It's I can't be bothered with it. I can't bear it. And I read Richards, and it was just sensationally good, right? Yeah. And I thought, you're great. This is better than me. Off you go. You don't need me, right? And then, um, oh, and by the way, James Gandolfini is going to be in this. And then, you know, incredibly sadly, uh, Gandolfini died. Mm-hmm. But then, oh, and Richard De Niro is going to be in uh, Robert De Niro is going to be in this. <laughs> and it was like, okay. <laughs> and then he stepped off and didn't do it either. Um, but it was like, uh, it was like getting small presents every few months of, of you know, uh, um, great versions of, you know, your own thing. Um, so I, they, they just, they just showed me things as they went through and I was almost always happy and occasionally had a suggestion to make or something. Um, yeah. And uh, how, because obviously a lot of your shows are, uh, UK legal dramas, but your honor set in the U- US legal system. I mean, mm. you know, how, how did you adapt to that? Was that with the help of the writer's room or did you do your own research in terms of the legal differences or? So I spent um, several months in Chicago and then in New Orleans, and um, it, so in, in inside two courthouses, twenty um, sixth in California, the courthouse in Chicago is the busiest courthouse in America, and one of the most extraordinary places I've ever been in. Um, it's a it's um, conveyor belt justice. Um, none of the people appearing there as accused um, understand what the fuck is going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, they're treated as people who are not important in any way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. Um, and a huge percentage of those people are African-American. Um, and um, just thinking solely uh, and in a way least importantly about the kind of extraordinary iconography of having people brought into courtrooms in orange coveralls, in chains around the ankle and around and handcuffs around your wrist, and inevitably with head bowed um, is stunning, I think, in, in, in a country that has a history of 400 years of treating mm-hmm. black people in an appalling fashion. Um, and the fact that anyone can think that's in any shape or form all right was incredibly shocking to me. And I felt um, um, incredibly angry about it and compelled to write about it. Um, um, and, um, you know, that's what I've gone on to do. And the, the, the other show that I'm writing at the moment is called 61st Street, which is set in Chicago. It's about the relationship between the Chicago Police Department and the African-American community on the south side of Chicago. Um, and it, that, that kind of came about because of the Laquan McDonald story, who's a um, young boy who was shot dead by mm-hmm. a police officer called Jason Van Dyke. Mm-hmm. 16 times he was shot. Um, 15 of those bullets went into his body when he was on the ground um, and and helpless. And I kind of followed that case and got to know the the journalist who was successful in compelling the city of Chicago to release the video footage that showed that the police were lying about um, uh, Lequan's attitude towards them, that he was a so-called danger to them, which he plainly wasn't, and the video established that. And Van Dyke was convicted, which is almost a first mm-hmm. in the history of police work in America that mm-hmm. a serving police officer is convicted of any crime in relation to anybody that's ever been hurt by them, which when you think about it is the most extraordinary um, business and tells you everything you need to know about 
the um, deep and institutional racism that exists inside those places. Um, so I just had to write about it. Um, but it was a you know interesting business because um, you know I'm a middle aged white person from Scotland. <laughs> 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 um, writing um, about you know this particular subject matter, and that's that's complicated in and of itself, mm-hmm. which is why it was very very important to get people working around me with me who um, you know are from that community. And is it important for you that your writing has a message then, or you know, or, or speaks into to some kind of in? Um, kind of wider wider issue or um, something that you want to have a say about and, and use the writing to, to, to get your your kind of feelings about a situation forward. And is, that, is that something that's quite important to you? It's often the start point. Um, um, so Criminal Justice, which became the night of and originally had, you know, was the, the Ben Wishaw as um, a kid who um, looked very like he committed a murder, um, mm-hmm and didn't know whether he had, and probably hadn't. Um, but we have an adversarial system which says um, uh, you try something on the evidence, and if beyond reasonable doubt you can prove somebody's guilt, then they're guilty. And I've always had a kind of horror of that classic what-if thing, you know, mm-hmm. which was his problem. There are always going to be sets of coincidences that 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 make it look as if i don't know peter moffat has killed somebody right when i haven't and and the system isn't going to deal with that the system's going to get that wrong or might get that wrong so that was the kind of genesis for um starting to think about this the story that became criminal justice but but i wanted to talk about prisons and life inside prisons and 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 what it's like for people you know in those uh, institutions so it can start with anger and polemic um and you have to be careful with that stuff of course you know um because polemicism can be boring um and you have to you know um dress it up and take it in other directions um in order to make your main point and when you're when you're telling your stories, when you when you have these uh, stories that come to you, do, do you always feel the need to you know have the have the breathing space of a few episodes to tell that story, or would you ever be attracted to writing a sort of shorter length movie type scenario? Because obviously you're best known for your TV work. I think it completely depends on the subject matter of the story, you know, and, and I think you just know as a writer whether, you know, it, it's a, it's a two hour thing or not. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, 10 hours is incredible, isn't it? For, mm-hmm. for, you know, for a serial story, it's a, it, it's a phenomenal period of time <laughs> that yeah. you're given as a gift to do that. And, um, I suppose you've got to try pretty hard to be honest with yourself and ask yourself whether actually you do need 10 hours because it's pretty hard to say no to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and you've got to watch it, I guess, with that sometimes, you know. Um, I was going to ask about your actual, your, your actual kind of process of writing and in, in, in terms of, you know, redrafts. Is it that kind of, we chat a lot of folk in the past, you kind of talk about the vomit draft and it's just getting it down there and then it's all in the rewriting. And is that the same for you or, is, or do you kind of, do a lot of in, in your head before you put pen to paper. Um, uh, yeah, rewriting is vital. Um, 
um, uh, I, uh, continuing to research all of the time is vital. You can, you know, um, before it's too late. Um, I, uh, uh, I don't ever stop researching. I think I, mm-hmm. you know, um, so in working on your honor, we were in new Orleans and I kept going back to court just to pick up, you know, bits you can, bits of texture and color and life mm-hmm. and smell and all that that you can, you know, put in, um, they got to know me actually. Judges, it, yeah. <laughs> they do this thing of right of um, when they first recognise that you're not the usual kind of pu- guy in the public gallery. They, they just say, who are you, right? <laughs> and you stand up and you say something like, "Oh, I'm Peter Mott." And they hear your accent, and <laughs> you know where you're from. And they say London. What are you doing? I'm doing this. Oh, come and talk to me. <laughs> so court stops. Really? Court stops, right? Why don't you go and have a nice chat with the judge? And there's that weird thing with television is that people want to tell you things. I don't know why, but they do. And then so I'd come back into court in the afternoon, say, after me and the judge had had our sandwich together or whatever. And and then you'd notice that actually they started being really kind. <laughs> <laughs> look, look what a liberal guy I am. <laughs> It, it occurred to me that if I spent the rest of my life hanging around in hanging around in courtrooms in America, then I could get a lot of defendants. And then, of course, and then of course the actors started going to the same courthouse. So, oh look, there's Brian Cranston watching. Right? I better be really looking. <laughs> if it struck upon a great new legal defence, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, pay someone tactic. famous in the yeah, audience. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I presume, um, given actually what you were saying at the start about your legal background and how that helped you be a writer, I mean, I'm guessing that you're someone that likes to um, sort of plan and structure your story um, before you start writing it. Would that is that right? Uh, yes and no. Um, I, th- I think with um, with screenwriting for me, there's the thing that you can do, which is that you come up with a moment in, say, episode two of something, and and you have no idea what the plan later plan for that moment will be, but you have a kind of sense that it's going to be good, that it's going to be valuable down the line, and that it's a seed that is definitely worth planting, and you have you you give yourself permission to have the confidence to know that that's going to pay off later. Um, occasionally you're wrong and, and, it, and it kind of doesn't, and it becomes a struggle and it can get too late in the day. Like you've filmed it already. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, Oh God, the payoff to that. I don't know. I don't know. But, but nine times out of 10, those things kind of work. So there is no plan for them, but there's a, I'm going to call it a gut sense that it's right, you know, that that it's a good idea. I mean, that sounds quite stressful to me, that idea of, Mm. because am I right in saying then that you start filming, et cetera, before you finish writing the whole script for the season? Um, You know, everything's not locked down. I mean, that sounds really stressful to me of of not knowing precisely how it's going to end or or the precise moments of how it'll pull uh, at, at the last episode and, I mean, yeah, is that, is that a stressful thing? Or is, as you say, do you just have to kind of trust that everything will line up in the end? It's strange that it isn't stressful to me, but I think that you, the second thing of what you said about tr- trusting yourself is probably is right. Um, um, I mean, I 
I I find that I'm sure you do too that the the, the process of writing, I mean act, the actual physical process of writing, um, uh, is certainly valuable in the generation of ideas. That you know that 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 I need to be actually doing it literally mm-hmm. um, sometimes in order to further the thinking properly. Mm-hmm. And it can be, it, I, I don't have to be writing about the problem that I've got. I can be writing about something else, but provide I'm writing, then quite often in from the side comes the answer to the problem. You know, mm-hmm. um, the only other space that I kind of find that I get that in is, is I do a load of running. I can go running every day and not thinking about writing and just being in the moment and write it, it it's astonishing how often answers to things mm-hmm. pop up or arrive unexpectedly yeah. <laughs> because you're not thinking about it um so i kind of rely on my running really to, to be <laughs> <laughs> yeah if that last episode's still to be written pounding the streets um, and uh, are you looking forward to the launch of Your Honour on, on British TV? It's quite weird because it's obviously been, you know, launched some time ago in the States and been through the whole process of, you know, and it's finished now. So the sort of Groundhog Day mm-hmm. of it, doing it all again is mm-hmm. really quite peculiar. Um, both sort of interesting and exciting and um, sort of exhausting as well. You know, yeah. the prospect of the whole, yeah. I don't know. You know, I spend, I don't, I don't know about you, but I spend so much of my time avoiding the internet in order to be able to write. <laughs> and then when your own thing is on the telly and people want to say what they want to say, good, bad, or indifferent, you know, staying away from that gets really hard. Yeah. And yeah. You sort of have to. Um, so having it go on for months is, really annoying in a way <laughs> so that that sounds very um sort of privileged because you know we're incredibly lucky <laughs> and you know it, it and oh you know none of us work down coal mines mm-hmm. um <laughs> so it's not that hard any of this um and it's a you know privilege to be able to do what we're doing but um yeah and would you ever want to try something else other than a play or a TV show like a novel, perhaps. Is it yeah, a novel. Interesting? A novel. Like I, I kind of agree with Martin Amis that it, the, the novel's a thing, and I, and I love the way that he can't believe that Shakespeare is the real thing. Right? <laughs> like, oh, well, that, that's the exception. Right? <laughs> um, um, so yeah, a novel, which feels like I don't know about you guys, but um, feels to me like a entirely separate business, which is the challenge, of course. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah. So I'm going to try and carve out the space to try and do that. Excellent. Nice. I suppose it's the kind of like, the control you have on a novel sounds some more something similar to perhaps the US style of shows where you've, you're involved in the editing of it and the casting and every detail of it is all in your head and you can control what goes on the page. Yeah, completely. Also, um, I was reading an interview with um, Donna Tart the other day. Ten years. To write a novel, yeah. <laughs> ten years, which I, which, which I get. If you read the secret, I could imagine taking ten years of yeah, if, they're, in they're my dreams to write a novel as good as that, right? Yeah. But um, oh, that feels good. <laughs> imagine what that guy would say. The nine that he was shocked at nine months. 
Exactly. <laughs> What's the last book that you read? So I'm currently reading, you know, I have this weird thing where whatever I'm reading, almost always, I can never remember the title. <laughs> but, so um, James Salter. Do you know James Salter? No. Okay, so uh, American writer, it's called All That Is. It's his last novel, new discovery to me, um, completely wonderful, talking about um, uh, post-war American lives. It's um, profoundly melancholic in the way that Richard Yates is mm-hmm. profoundly melancholic. Mm-hmm. I read all of Richard Yates really uh, in about a four-month period a year and a half ago or so, and it um, um, almost destroyed me, actually. Yeah, I could, I've never had such a visceral, strong, personal reaction. I went around all of the time feeling low mm-hmm. because of Richard fucking Yates. I couldn't stop. But I recommend James Salter. He's pretty terrific. Excellent. Yeah. I'll need, to, more, need to check that out. What about the last uh, film that you watched? Uh, last film film? Oh, good question. Um the last television I've been I've been watching Queen's Gambit. Oh, oh yeah. Right. That's, yeah, that's good, good yeah. Um, but I did a really strange thing, actually, which was um, my wife was watching it on Netflix, wherever it's on Netflix, mm-hmm. and I use her Netflix account, mm-hmm. and I pressed play, right? So you have to excuse my technological incompetence here. <laughs> play, and on it came, and it was fantastic. I loved it. And she came into the room. And I said, that's fantastic, isn't it? He said, yeah, it's great. And I said, that bit where um, her mum dies is extraordinary. Oh, no. She said, what? <laughs> said, you know, when the mum dies. Anyway, I'd watched episode four, right, which is where <laughs> she was up to in her viewing at Queen Gun. And it was a, a completely brilliant first episode. Yeah. <laughs> Right? I, and it's, it's a really interesting lesson in, I'm going to go, I'm sure one, two, and three are marvelous. <laughs> yeah. But it's an interesting lesson in that, you know, come yeah. in late in a scene or a story, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Episode four, roughly. <laughs> I often thought about that when you watch a film or something and, because and, I can't remember who it was that said, start your story as close to the end as possible. Bonnegut, I think. So. Bonnegut, I think, yeah. yeah. And, um, but I often kind of think that you watch a film and you get halfway through, you, there's a certain scene and you think, imagine if this was the first scene, you know, if you just drop someone midway yeah. through this film, would they catch up? And uh, often I think it's more exciting to catch up on the go that rather than fill in the blanks beforehand. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I love the thrill of cutting, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm so in love with the little things that I'm writing and, and the scene that I've done on when it's first written mm-hmm. and ready. And the thought of anybody changing anything about it is hellish <laughs> yeah. to imagine. Cut to some months later, and the relish with which you can <laughs> cut into your own stuff. Yeah. It, it's a really peculiar shift, that, actually. Yeah. I don't really understand it. But, but relish is the right word, you know? Um, oh, look at that big, fat, stupid speech, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> right? Bye-bye. <laughs> And it's a great feeling. And people are worried for you because you made this big cut. And I'm torn between pretending that it's been hard, right? 
so that when they really want to do something stupid, you can say, yeah, but that, remember how hard it was? Or, or, or just telling the truth and saying, yeah, you, it's right, it's gone, it's great. It's that satisfying feeling of you, you're making it better and it's, it's actually like, like a weight off your shoulders being that this is, yeah, needs to go. Yeah. yeah. But, but sometimes when you're writing something, I think you, you need to put that stuff in to build the story. But then once you've got the whole story there, it is, you suddenly realise, I don't need yeah. to do that. That that can come out now because I don't need it anymore. It's almost That's like planning, almost planning it in your head as you're writing it, and then once you've got it sorted out, yeah, you can you can exactly take it away. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. Yeah. Um, um, so the very last thing that we do as well is an either or uh, uh, thing. Oh. So um, no right answers, as Tarek likes to say, apart from for one of them, um, okay. which Tarek <laughs> has a. Has, as a strong feelings about but um the, the first one is uh, uh going old school at uh, rumple of the bailey or la law <sighs> la law <laughs> uh, do i need to say why yeah go for it yeah, yeah. please yeah. i've never been back to rumple of the bailey uh you know since watching it mm-hmm. whenever i watch anything um i've got a really big secret fear about it that it's terrible. Yeah, it could be, yeah. I think it might be terrible. I don't, I don't know. There's so many stuff that you read or watch years ago, and you think, "I don't want to ruin it. I don't want to tarnish it. It's it's in my memory yeah. as being amazing, and I'm going to leave it there." And, that's and the thing you really mustn't do is say to your children if you have them, yeah. "Come and watch this wonderful thing that I saw." And like, oh no! Oh no! My, my parents have done that with me, and and, and half is through. They've turned and said, "I'm I'm really sorry. I remember this being a lot better." <laughs> Um, I'll, I'll, I'll go general then. Uh, UK legal dramas or US legal dramas? Great question. Um, um, US legal dramas because this is a this is a false answer because lawyers get to walk around court and not wear wigs. <laughs> still wanted to do that in real life, so that's good. Uh, TV or cinema. Cinema, for being there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, a takeaway or a fancy restaurant? Fancy restaurant, what are you talking about? What kind of question is that? <laughs> <laughs> what kind of question is that? Who says we're, we're Scottish, remember? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Chippy and Netflix, that's a perfect night in for me. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay. Um, uh, last one, uh, a, a real book or an audio book? Um, uh, a, a, a real book, definitely, although I'll be forever, ever grateful to Stephen Fry for all those hours and hours of Harry bloody Potter <laughs> and long car journeys with young children. <laughs> yeah. Always, always. Sh- and what an achievement, by the way. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's so long. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Especially the last few books are massive. I know. I, I've often thought that as I read my girls, their night bedtime stories. I'm like, how do uh, people do this for yeah. something like the whole of Harry Potter <laughs> and keep it interesting? There was an interview I read with, um, I can't remember who it was. He's read, he read, I think it was War of the World or something he did not for Audible. And he said it's it, it's one of the hardest things because you ha- you've got so little time booked in the studio and you're reading it and you can't stop and your throat's getting raw yeah. and so you've got you have to just keep pushing through it and it's it sounded really difficult and so yeah so hats off to the guy yeah definitely 
going to read your audio book, Terry. Well, I was definitely not going to do it myself after the <laughs> horror stories I've read about people losing their voices for weeks after, after exactly. reading. <laughs> need to hire someone for that. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it, it's a, as I said to Peter, now, when I'm reading bedtime stories, that's hard enough. But to read like <laughs> the seventh book of Harry Potter. I mean, fair play to the guy, yeah. Probably two days or something yeah. is is some task, it has to be said. And also, I always remember, you know, if you get a good audiobook narrator who is putting on different voices for different characters, some of these books have lots of characters. Um, how do they remember which voice they've given to each character? I wanted that. Like that. There, there was a Stephen King book I was listening to. I think it was maybe The Insider. And the guy reading it, big cast characters and different voices. No, it was The Stand, which is a massive oh, cast. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. And he's got a different voice for everyone, and he keeps track of what everyone sounds like. And it's 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 like a one man radio. Yeah, you know, it's amazing. You know, it's, it's impressive. Yeah, no. It, the the if if the narrator of an audiobook is good, it can really lift that book for you. And it, yeah, totally. the opposite is true as well. Even good books, you don't want to listen to if if the narrator's yeah, a poor one. Yeah, it's. I think the narrator is such a massive. Uh, part of a book and yet it's kind of the unsung hero to a lot of people I think you never really think about the who who, who reads mm-hmm. it but it can definitely it can make or break it yeah definitely yeah um well I, I really enjoyed chatting to Peter there I thought it was a really interesting episode I mean what he was saying about the writer's room and that there are people in the writer's room that have worked in a writer's room for 10 20 years it's and nuts. have never had a word that they've written on the screen I mean it's incredible I mean, you really do have to give up that, you know, because a lot of people become writers so they can see their name on the front of something or in the headline of something. And you really have to get rid of that part of you, don't you, if you're in a writer's room. Well, you still get your name, don't you? Well, you still get your name in in some way, but but you're just... You don't get that validation of the thing that you've written being said by the actors. It's, it's, yeah. But as as he said, I suppose it's just a a job and you just realise that your job is to help build the story rather than actually get the dialogue out there but yeah incredible really interesting as well the difference in process between the US and the UK and being a showrunner is as you said in the podcast very akin to you know is more akin to being a novelist in the sense of the control that you have even though you've got all these other people helping you do it you're involved in the direction of it you're involved in the edit of it so you have that control that you maybe don't have if you're handing a script to the BBC or something. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting the way that it's done over there compared to in the UK and I, I mean I'd imagine it's a, well is it a more fun thing I suppose it's more stress and everything but then it's more your own baby but then maybe that's bad because if it's crap. Yeah exactly. You, you can't blame BBC. But <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well um, thanks very much to Peter and uh, one thing we should say you'll probably be wondering why uh, the artwork, the podcast cover, as they call it, is is a painting rather than a photograph. But um, Peter uh, provided that it was actually a painting by his daughter, and uh, he wanted that used. So that's that's why that is on the podcast cover. Marco and I um, submitted to him our, our own drawings of him, but he, <laughs> he very quickly said no. Now this would normally be the time when I tell you about next week's guest, but um, we are going to have a couple of weeks off, just just a couple of weeks. We do have a lot of episodes already in the can, but uh, we're just going to take a slight break um, so that I can remember what 
spare time is like without <laughs> having to edit a podcast. <laughs> I was going to say, Marco has just been, pre- been begging me for a break for weeks now. And I finally said, fine, you can have two weeks off. But once this is done, you're back at it. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so we will be back with a very big guest in the first episode. We won't spoil it now. But um, as I say, if you really miss this brilliant banter that we have here, there's this 63 <laughs> other episodes that you can go back and listen to. And if you enjoy the podcast, uh, do take time to uh, leave a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app that you use. And of course, you can always send us a message through the Twitter machine, which is at right underscore gear, or send us an email to podcast at rightgear.co.uk. Great. But otherwise, uh, have a great couple of weeks and uh, we'll be back at the start of what we're calling season seven. Oh, season seven. See you later. <laughs>